It's so good to be uh, with you here this morning. Happy Palm Sunday, everybody. Happy Palm Sunday. You could give your neighbor a high five for Palm Sunday with your palm. There, you go. It's not that kind of Palm Sunday, but that could work either way. Man, so good to see you and to see each one of you and to see what God is doing in your life. I believe God's doing good things in your life. Amen. Amen. I uh, want to let you know about one thing that's coming up. Of course, next Sunday's Easter Sunday. How many of you are excited about that? I'm looking forward to that. We're going to have a wonderful Resurrection Sunday. But the following Sunday, April the 11th, April 11th, we're starting a new series here at the church. As you know, we finished the book of Acts and we spent a whole year in the book of Acts. And so after Easter, we're jumping into a new series and we're going to be doing a series on the church. We're going to do a series on what it means to be the church. And can, can you guess what this series is about, the church? It's, it's about the church. And so we're going to be talking about what is a church. A church is, spoiler alert, a church is not a building. Got some amens over here. You guys are my friends over here today. The church is not a building. The church is not a place that you go the Bible says that we are the church. The, the body of Christ is the church. And so we're going to look at, at over several weeks what that means and how do we live that out and how do we be the church in, in 2021. So that is going to be a, a very pivotal series for us. I would encourage you, of course, next Sunday we'll come and celebrate the resurrection, but also the following Sunday, April the 11th. Let's be here uh, for that series. You know, this year, uh, Destiny Church, our church, turns 80, 80 years old this year. So um, we think it's a good time to reinvigorate ourselves on, on what it means to be the church and live as the church as we enter into our next season of, of the next 80 years of uh, Destiny Church until the Lord comes. Amen. So if you would, open with me in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 21. We're, I'm doing something today I've, I've never done. We've, I've never done a Palm Sunday a sermon before. We're always usually in a series, and I, I never take a break for Palm Sunday. But since we're not in a series, I thought we'll, we'd do a Palm Sunday uh, sermon today. And so we're going to look at this, this great event of Jesus coming into Jerusalem and this event is not only chronicled for us in Matthew's gospel, but it's also in Mark 11, Luke 19, John chapter 12. But we're going to look at our, this text today. We're going to stay in uh, Matthew for uh, our, our, our time in the scripture this morning. And I, I just want to summarize for you where th this is in the story of Jesus, th this event that we're going to be reading about today. Uh, Jesus has been ministering publicly at this point, for about three and a half years. You know the story of when Jesus uh, was baptized and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon him and he went into the wilderness, was tempted by the devil. He, he did not sin. He overcame the devil through the word of God. And for three and a half years, he, he ministered. He, he traveled around from various cities and villages preaching and teaching the word of God, preaching and teaching uh, about repentance of sin and, and faith towards God, about returning to God. And he also healed people. He healed the sick and he, he fed the multitudes. And, and he, he, he taught and he, he ministered for, for three and a half years. And his ministry culminated in his greatest miracle, which is in John chapter 11, when Jesus calls a dead man out of the grave. He called a man named Lazarus, a man who had been dead for four days. He, he called him out of the grave and, and Lazarus got up and, and walked out in obedience to Jesus. And word of this spread, Jesus performed this miracle in a city called Bethany, which was just two miles away from Jerusalem, the capital city. And so word of what Jesus had done, this great miracle had spread through the multitudes and it was just a few weeks before Passover that Jesus had performed this miracle. Passover was the greatest holiday for the Jewish people. It was a remembrance and a celebration of when God had delivered his people from captivity in Egypt. 
And so every year during Passover time, Josephus, the Jewish historian, records for us that upwards of two million Jews would gather in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And word of Jesus is, is spreading. Word of Jesus is going out. And so the crowds are in great anticipation, wondering if this miracle worker, this man who can who can multiply food, this man who can heal the sick and, and open blind eyes and, and the lame walk and the dead even are being raised. They wonder, will this man, will this prophet Jesus, will he come to the Passover in Jerusalem? And the people have been expecting and anticipating a Savior, a Messiah, who would come and set them free. You see, at this time, God's people were under occupation. They were under the occupation of Rome, Roman oppression. And so the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah, a Savior, a Deliverer who would set them free. God had promised beforehand in the prophets, uh, through the prophets, about this Messiah, about this Deliverer, about this Savior who would come. And so they're looking forward to, they're expecting, they're hoping that this Messiah will come and set them free, and they're hoping that Jesus is that Messiah. And so the question, as, as they're getting ready to celebrate the Passover that week, Jesus now makes his way to Jerusalem on the first day of the week, on that Sunday. And so that's why we call this Palm Sunday. We're, we're celebrating that the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And so that's where we're at. That's, that's sort of the story leading up to this point. And so let's just jump right into Matthew chapter 21. And it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, they brought the donkey and the colt and put them on and put on them their cloaks and Jesus sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road and the crowds that went before him and that followed after him were shouting hosanna to the son of david blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord hosanna in the highest and when he entered jerusalem the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written... My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they, what they are saying? Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Skipping down to verse 23, Jesus again enters the temple and the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him. And as he was teaching, they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Father, we thank you for your word. Speak to our hearts today. 
Open our eyes, open our ears by the power of your spirit. Reveal to us the truth, the truth of your word, the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of what is contained in your word today. Speak to us, help us, help us to not just be hearers of your word, but people who live it out, people who, who put it into action, people who obey your word. That we would live, Lord, not for the, the praise of, of men, but that we would live for the glory of God alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Three things that I want to highlight for you uh, from this passage today. The first is simply the prophetic fulfillment. The, the, that Jesus fulfilled what the prophets had spoken. There, there are uh, some 300 in the Old Testament, 300 predictions, prophecies, declarations that God had spoke through his messengers, through his prophets, that pointed towards, that told about, that painted a picture of who the Messiah would be. God had made a promise when Adam and Eve sinned. The first promise that he made was that there would be a deliverer who would come and crush the head of Satan. And after that first promise, there, there's another some 300 predictions and promises that come, prophecies of who the Messiah would be. We know many of them, that he would be born in the city of Bethlehem, that he would be born not of, of, of a natural birth, but it would, would be a supernatural birth, and that it, Jesus would be, the Messiah would be virgin born. We know that the Messiah from Isaiah chapter 53 will, will die for the sins of his people, that he will shed his blood to atone for sin. There's so many different prophecies, so many different predictions, and Matthew's gospel outlines for us some 20 of those predictions, those prophecies, but here simply in this passage, in these three verses, there's three of them. Three of these prophetic fulfillments, three of these things that Jesus did that was a fulfillment, a direct fulfillment of what had been spoken of some hundreds of years before he was ever born. The first is that he would enter Jerusalem not on foot, not riding on a horse, but rather specifically that he would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. This was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. And here Matthew tells us that Jesus is the, here in this moment, he is fulfilling what God had spoken beforehand. Additionally, when, when Jesus says to them, he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Here Jesus is quoting from the prophet Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7. Finally, when, when the, the, the little ones are gathering around Jesus and they're, they're singing their praise and they're shouting Hosanna to the son of David and the chief priests and the scribes, they get angry at this sight. Jesus sarcastically says to them, have you never read? You know, these are the people that are supposed to know the word of God better than anybody else. It was their job, their life experience, their, their, the dedication of their life, especially the scribes, to know the word of God, to write the word of God, to teach the word of God. And Jesus says to them, haven't you read this verse before? Don't you know the word? You guys don't know your Bibles is what he says to them. Nevertheless, he says, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise again Jesus fulfilling this prophecy, Psalm 8, verse 2. That Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one that God had promised to send as a deliverer for his people. Additionally, we see that the crowds who had gathered to celebrate the Passover, they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They believe that he is the one that has been promised and we know that they believe by what they do and what they say. They, they lay out their coats upon the, the street to pave the way for Jesus to enter into Jerusalem. 
They begin to cut down palm branches, which was in that day, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but palm branches was the, the national symbol for the nation of Israel. It was like their, their flag in that day. Think, think about the, the 4th of July on, you know, how, how typically in, in, in our neighborhoods, the houses are lined with American flags and there's American flags everywhere. A 4th of July parade, everybody's got their red, white, and blue out. There's fireworks happening on, on that day. This was like that for them. The Star of David and, and the flag that we think of for the nation of Israel, that came much later after Jesus was on the face of the earth. In Jesus' day, the, the flag of Israel, the symbol for the nation of Israel, it was a palm branch. And so they cut down these palm branches. They're, they're waving them. This is a symbol, a sign of, of the fact that they say, our king has come. The one we've been waiting for, the one we've been anticipating, the one we've been looking forward to, he is here now. We know this by what they did. We know this by the flag that they were waving, but also the words that they were speaking, the declaration. They were saying, here comes the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, God had also promised that, that David would have a descendant, King David, that that there would be a descendant that would come from him who would reestablish God's kingdom and that he would rule and reign over the kingdom of God for all eternity, that it would be a kingdom without end. God had made this promise to David. We read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, this promise to David. The prophet Jeremiah re reiterates this in Jeremiah 33 talking about the son of David who will sit on the throne of the kingdom of God. As they make this declaration, they're saying Jesus is that king. Jesus is the one that had been promised. Jesus is the one that the prophets had spoken of. He's here and we're excited about it. Shouts of praise ringing through the streets of Israel. It's a sight like, I mean, it would be hard to even imagine what it would be like to be caught up in so much anticipation. People having been waiting, people who had been, the Bible says, in darkness, people who had been oppressed, living under Roman occupation, they expect Jesus to come and to deliver them, to set them free. But curiously, what Jesus does as he enters into Jerusalem, he doesn't go and confront the Roman occupation. He, he doesn't go to the governor's mansion. He doesn't go and confront Pilate, who was the Roman governor in Jerusalem. That's not what he does when he comes into Jerusalem on that day. When people are shouting that here is the king, the king we've been waiting for, the savior, the messiah, the deliverer, he's here. But he doesn't go and confront the political establishment. He doesn't go and confront the state. Instead, where does he go? Where does he go? He goes to the temple. He goes to the temple and he doesn't confront the political establishment, he doesn't confront the state, but he confronts the religious establishment. Amen. He confronts the scribes and the Pharisees and the, the religious leaders of, of God's people. It's interesting. It's, it would have been confusing for this crowd that had gathered and this this all-powerful man who can raise the dead and feed the multitudes and heal the sick and has been preaching about the kingdom of God for three and a half years, that he walks in and has been declared the king by the inhabitants of this city, but he doesn't go to the political power. Instead, he goes to the religious seat of authority. And, and when he goes there, he, he does something unusual he doesn't go and participate in what's happening there. He doesn't go and participate in the worship, in the system that's there going. In fact, he goes and he rebukes them. 
he, he drives them out of the temple. This is the second thing I want to draw your attention to, this, this cleansing of the temple. You know, we have, sometimes we have in our minds this idea of Jesus that does not fit what the Bible tells us about Jesus. We get ideas about Jesus from our traditions, from maybe things we were taught as children in Sunday school. We, we all have ideas, we all have pictures in our mind about who Jesus is. And a lot of times the, the picture of Jesus is, is not someone who would go to the temple and drive people out of it. Not go and confront them in their hypocrisy. Not go and pronounce upon them woes. We sort of have this picture of Jesus that is soft and weak and limp and mealy-mouthed, this hippie who never confronted anybody, who never made anybody upset, who, who just came and was like high all the time and is talking about love and peace, baby. That's not the picture we see of Jesus in the Bible. I brought, I brought with me a picture today of what most people think of when they think of Jesus. This guy who's always carrying a lamb and he's even wearing makeup in, in these photographs. It's, I don't know why Jesus is always carrying a lamb. He wasn't a shepherd. Jesus was a carpenter. He swung a hammer. It's hard work. He wasn't this soft, skinny, little frail dude. He, he, he built stuff. He, he, was a, he was a man's man. I got an amen from somebody in church in the first, in the first service. Wasn't this little sissy wearing makeup? Of course, Jesus metaphorically says, I'm the good shepherd. He's speaking in a, in a metaphor. He's, he's talking about that he's here to care for God's people. I brought another picture. This is a more accurate picture of what Jesus was like. In John's gospel, it tells us that Jesus took a, a, some cords and he fashioned them into a whip. And he drove out these merchants who had come into God's house. To, to drive, to, to, to go into a marketplace and to clear it out with a whip. That takes some, some something. That takes some, your blood has to be pumping, right? I mean, Jesus didn't go in, you know, excuse me, pardon me if... If it wouldn't be too much trouble, would you mind moving what you're doing outside? It's kind of a distraction here. No, Jesus went in, made a whip, and started flipping over tables and said, get out of here. This is, this is ferocious. This is fierce. This is, he is angry. Could we even use the term violent? Why was Jesus so upset? What was happening there that made him so angry? I brought with me also today a picture of the temple. I want to explain to you what, what was happening in, in that day. This is a picture of the temple complex in Jesus' day. And you'll see that there's a, a wall that, that goes all around the, the proper temple building that that temple, the, 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 the larger portion of that temple was a place called the Holy of Holies. A place where God's spirit was to dwell. And, and this place from, from where uh, humanity and, and God could come together and meet together. And the people could come and worship God. But there was a, a wall of division, a dividing wall. And, and what that wall did is it separated uh, the Jewish people, those who were descendants of Abraham, from everyone who wasn't. A, a Gentile, those who did not descend from Abraham. And so there was this court called the Court of Gentiles, and, and that is where people who, 
who didn't descend from Abraham, but who did worship God, the one true God, Yahweh, that they could come into the temple court and that they could worship God and that they could pray to him and that they could get close and near to his presence. The dividing wall, that they could go no further beyond that. Only a Jewish person, only a physical descendant of Abraham could go beyond that wall of division. And in this courtyard, the court of the Gentiles, this is where they had set up this marketplace. This is where they were buying and selling animals, buying and selling pigeons to go and to, to offer them as sacrifices in the temple. This is where they were exchanging money. Because you couldn't, in that day, you couldn't go and give an offering that, had a, a Ro, that used Roman currency. The temple would not receive it because it had the inscription of Caesar on it. So to give an offering in the temple, first you had to exchange your money out of Roman currency, a denarius, into what would be accepted by the temple, into the, the currency of the temple. And in this process, they're, they're ripping people off. They're... they're, they're the exchange rate isn't fair. It's like when you travel to a foreign country. You never want to change your money at the airport because the exchange rate is just, you know, it's convenience sake. They're charging you a ton of money for that. They're doing the same thing there. And they had literally turned in, turned God's house, turned God's temple, turned the place where people were to come and to, to experience the presence of God. They had literally turned it into a stock show and into a rodeo animals there have you, have you ever been to the san antonio rodeo when, whenever you go to the rodeo do you ever just say wow it just seems like it's such a wonderful place to worship god no what are you doing you're, you're stepping in stuff that came out of an animal it's smelly it's stinky it, it's, it doesn't produce in, in someone the kind of heart that would have them contemplate on the transcendence and the glory of God. It makes you think about like cotton candy and, you know, riding a bull. and It's, it's just chaos. It's chaos. And God had from the very beginning wanted to draw humanity into a relationship with himself, wanted to draw humanity to where they could come and experience his presence. And here, the, the nations of the world, the place for them to come and worship God, and they come in, and there's a goat biting their clothes, and they're stepping in poop, and they're getting ripped off by these businessmen who are exchanging their offerings. And, and Jesus comes in, and he sees what's happening, and he's mad about it. And so he makes a whip, and he drives them out. He clears the temple so that people can worship God. So that people could draw near to God and, and experience his presence. Jesus did not go to, the, to Pilate. He did not go to the Roman governor and clear him out. Though he could have. Instead he goes and he reforms the, the place where worship was happening. He confronts the religious establishment. And here we see that Jesus does not do what the people want him to do. He doesn't do what the crowds want him to do. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior. Make no mistake about it. But he wasn't the savior the people wanted. He didn't come to set people free from Roman occupation. He came to set people free from sin. He didn't come to set people free from bondage to Rome. He came to set people free from bondage to Satan. And sin and darkness. That is the work that Jesus came to do. Not to overthrow Rome but to overthrow the kingdom of darkness. That's not what the people wanted. And the result is that, that from between Sunday and Friday, these crowds that once thought Jesus was so great, when Jesus doesn't do what they want him to do, they turn on him. 
The, the crowds that on Sunday were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, are the same crowds, are the same voices that Friday shout, crucify him, crucify him. It's the same city, it's the same people, it's the same crowds, it's the same voices. When Jesus doesn't do what the crowds want him to do, they turn on him. But Jesus did not live for the approval of men. Jesus lived his life for the glory of God. And as we see the events of this week play out, we see that Jesus knows exactly what he is there to do. He knows that this is the hour for which he has come into the world, not to overthrow Rome, but to overthrow the kingdom of Satan. Jesus not living to, to please anyone else other than God. There are many today who are like the crowds that gathered that day in Jerusalem. When, when, when there, there are certain parts about Jesus and certain parts about Jesus' life that people in the crowd, they love. They love the things that Jesus taught. Love your neighbor. There's lots of people that love that saying today. There's lots of people today that, that look at the ministry of Jesus and look how he, he fed the, the hungry and, and look how he ministered to the sick and and look how he, he, he encouraged people to love their neighbor. And, and they, they love that about Jesus. But when you start preaching about the exclusivity of Christ, when you start teaching about the, the claims that Jesus made, the things that Jesus said, like go and sin no more to the woman caught in adultery, the teachings that Jesus gave on hell, the, the exclusive claims that he made about himself that, that there's no way to come to the Father but through me, and that if you reject me, you have rejected God, you start telling those claims and people, the crowds, just like in Jesus' day, they turn from Christ. They don't want to follow that Jesus. They'll, they'll follow the Jesus of, of love your neighbor and feed the hungry and, and, and care for the sick and, and all of that. They'll follow that Jesus. But the Jesus that said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, that's number one. Then love your neighbor as yourself. You can't pick and choose what you like about Jesus. That's not what a relationship is like. When you married your spouse, you didn't just marry the good parts. You married all of them. Amen? You didn't, you didn't just get to be like, well, I like this about them, I like that about them, and well, I don't know about that, but eh. No, when you are in a relationship with someone, you take all of them. Jesus is not a buffet. J Jesus is not like going to Golden Corral. I'll take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and no, no green beans, no, no okra, no, no, nothing that's actually good for me. People today approach Jesus like they can pick and choose the parts of him that they like and want to follow. No relationship like that exists in the world today. I mean, when, when you're in a relationship with someone, you're in it for the good, the bad, and the stuff that you don't like. You take all of them. We, we cannot fall into the spirit of, of, of the culture that would appreciate Jesus for he was a good teacher. He had some good things to say about life. And yeah, love your neighbor. Yeah, that's great. And and, 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 and yeah, we got to do this and yeah, we got to do that. But we reject the claims he made about being God in the flesh. 
We, we reject the fact that he rose from the dead. We reject the fact that he, he paid the price for sin by his death. There are those in the world today that try to accept what they think are the good parts about Jesus and then reject the parts that they don't like. It doesn't work that way. You either take all of him or you have none of him. That's how it works. You either believe in what he said about himself and what he came to accomplish and what he did or you don't believe in him at all. We must believe upon Christ fully. The crowds didn't like what Jesus did. They turned away from him. We cannot be like those crowds. The, second, the third thing I want to point your attention to, the first was the prophetic fulfillment. The second was the cleansing of the temple. The third here is in that last verse that I read to you from verse 23. I'll read it again. It says, And Jesus entered the temple, and the chief priests and the elders, and the people came up to him as he was teaching, and they said, Listen to this. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now it had become abundantly clear on what authority Jesus was acting and speaking. In John chapter 3, one of the Jewish leaders, a man named Nicodemus, he came and visited Jesus by night so as not to be discovered and when he comes to Jesus, he says this, We know that you have come from God because no one can do the things that you are doing unless he has come from God. They knew where he had come from. It was abundantly clear that Jesus had come from God. So why do they question his authority? Why is it that they're asking this question? It's because Jesus, as God in the flesh, what he represents is, is you, you either follow him or you don't. He, him, his presence demands total devotion, complete submission. Jesus is God in the flesh. Yet these Leaders, they don't want to submit to God. Because to submit to God would be to take away their authority, to take away their power, to take away their glory, and to submit it to the power and the glory of Christ. And They do not want to do that. And so they question God in the flesh. They question his authority they challenge him, which we look at and, and we say, he's God in the flesh, the word made flesh standing right in front of them. And they say, uh, who, who gave you permission to come in here and rearrange our temple? Who gave you permission? It's like a little kid playing with their friends. You can't tell me what to do. Who made you the boss of me? You're not the boss of me. That's what this is like. Jesus standing right there. The one who had given them the plans for the temple. The one who had spoken out of the burning bush to Moses. The one who everything that's been happening there for a millennia has been pointing towards the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And they stand in front of him and say, who gave you permission to do this? They rejected God. They rejected God's authority because it was a threat to their own authority and power. And likewise, there are many today who question God's authority in their life by questioning the word of God. Jesus is the word made flesh. There are many today who, 
who challenge the authority of God's word, who challenge the, the, the question that, that the God's word is authoritative in our lives today. The, the reason why God's word is authoritative is simply because it is God's word. It is God-breathed. The Apostle Paul writes, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by God. This is the words of God, literally the words of God, the breath of God, God-breathed, God-inspired. That God, Peter writes, that that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote down the very words of God. The reason why God's word is authoritative is because God is, has all power. God has all authority. God has all dominion. There's no power above God. There's nobody on the org chart that sits above God. God is the ultimate. He is absolute. And so when he speaks, that is it. There's no debating. There's no questioning. There's no reasoning. There's no, well, I wonder what that really says in the Greek. It is what it is. What God has spoken settles it. It doesn't change. Why? Because God doesn't change. See, God is not like me and you. If you ask me what my favorite restaurant is last week, and then you ask me a week from today, it'll probably be a different thing. Why? Because I change and you change. What you like today, you might not like tomorrow. God doesn't change. God's word is an expression. It is an overflow. It flows out of who he is. His nature, his character does not change. So what was a sin a thousand years ago is a sin Today, because God doesn't change. His moral character doesn't change. His nature doesn't change. And therefore, his word doesn't change. It's not as if God didn't anticipate where we would be in the year 2000 and accidentally left some stuff out. It's not how it works. God's word is authoritative. God's word is inspired. God's word is perfect, infallible. Why? Because he is perfect and infallible and does not make mistakes. And there are many today who want to question the authority of God's word. Do I have to submit my life to what the word of God says? And this is the same question that Satan asked Eve in the garden. Did God really say? Did God really say? Is this what God's word really says? You, you don't have to obey God's word. You can do what you want to do. Live life your way. Invent the rules for yourself. Don't have to live under God's authority. This is what the Pharisees wanted. They wanted to be an authority unto themselves. And so they're confronting the one who has all authority and power because they do not want to submit to God. Likewise, People today do not want to submit their lives to God and his word. It's nothing new. It's the original sin, rebellion against God. But here's the thing that we need to understand, even as God's people, those who have been redeemed, those who have put their faith in Christ, those who trust only in Jesus and have received him in our lives, we must bring ourselves under the authority of the word of God. Amen. And every time we sin, we are challenging the authority of God's word in our life. Every sin is a declaration of rebellion against God. I know what God's word says, but I'm doing this instead. It is the exact same thing. It's, I'm, I am the authority here, not God. Every sin is, is a call into question. The, the authority of God's word is a challenge of the authority of God's word. And here's the thing. It didn't end well for those in Jesus' day. And it will not end well for you either. 
The pathway to blessing, God's blessing in life, is to submit yourself to the word of God. The pathway to death, destruction, hurt, harm, heartache, is to disobey the word of God. God's word actually says this, Deuteronomy verse 30, chapter 30, verse 19. Moses, standing on the precipice of the promised land, God's people been delivered from Israel, Egypt, are going into the promised land to possess it. Moses has given God's people God's word. And he's imploring them to live not by their own authority, not by what they think is right, but what God has revealed as right and true. And so Moses says, he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Here's what I wanted to show you. He says, love the Lord your God. How do I do that? By obeying his voice and holding fast to him. Moses says, I've set before you two pathways, two courses, two, two roads that you can walk down in life. The pathway of blessing and the pathway of curse. The pathway of life and the pathway of death. The pathway of blessing and life is to submit your life to the word of God, to the authority of God's word, to what Jesus has spoken. The pathway of death, the pathway of the curse, the pathway of hurt and harm and, and heartache is to disobey God's word and not to recognize its authority in your life. You say, well, does God put me under a curse if I disobey his word? Listen, there are just laws. God has created this world. He's created this world with laws that govern the universe, both physical and spiritual laws. If you break the law, bad things happen. It's not that God is up there assigning curses. It's just this is the way the world works that God has made. There's a law called gravity. There's no, it's, it's not that God is up there saying, oh, he dropped that bottle. I got to make it fall right now. No, God has instituted laws that govern the world, not just physical, but also spiritual and he's saying to, to the people of Israel, his people, follow the path of life. Follow my laws. It's the pathway to blessing. And for us today, we have to recognize this. There are many who want to challenge the authority of God's word. It does not end well. The pathway to blessing, true, everlasting blessing, love and joy and peace is to follow the word of God, to, to humble yourself, to submit yourself to the word of God. Amen. Jesus put it this way, John 14, 15, he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Amen. How do we show that we love God? By obeying his word. By obeying his word. That's what Jesus said. By obeying his word. What we see is, of course, that they reject Christ, the, the Pharisees, and they stir up the crowds, and the crowds reject Christ, and they maneuver things and put him on a false trial, and he's crucified for the... He's crucified. They, they think they're winning, but they don't realize that Jesus conquered, not through military might and sword, but he conquered by laying his own life down. Amen. It's this upside down kingdom. It's, it's the way that God's kingdom works versus the way we think things should work. Jesus goes to the cross and it, it looks like it's the ultimate defeat, but in reality it's the ultimate victory. It's this beautiful 
turn of events, which we're going to celebrate Friday and we'll celebrate again on Easter Sunday. But we now live on the other side. We, we know things. We see things that they didn't see. For us to, to, to take upon ourselves the same attitude as the people who stood before Jesus and questioned his authority, it will not end well. We need to recognize who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior that God sent into the world. He is the one who had been promised. And he is the one that we need to follow, that we need to obey, that we need to humble ourselves under his authority to walk in the pathway of blessing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It teaches us and instructs us. It leads us. It guides us. Lord, you've laid before us the, the path of life and the path of death. And you implore us, choose life. Help us, Lord, by your spirit to humble ourselves. Lord, that you, you would open up our eyes to see the truth of who Jesus is. Lord, flesh and blood cannot reveal that truth to us. It's only by the power of your spirit. So Holy Spirit, give us a clearer picture of Jesus. And fixing our eyes upon him, we would humbly submit ourselves to his word to follow after you, to show our love for you by keeping your word. Lord, none of us is perfect. We, we all fall, but you help us by your spirit. You, you are our advocate with the Father. You, you are the one who, who intercedes on our behalf. You are the one who stands in the gap. Though we may fall and, and though at times we may sin, your blood, your grace covers a multitude of sin. And we thank you that we are able to have fellowship with you through your work of redemption for us. Help us, Lord, having been redeemed, having been saved, having been set free, having received your grace, to walk it out, to, to, to live as people who have been set free, to live as people who have been forgiven, to live as people who have experienced your favor in our lives. I pray that we would hold this, this favor, this grace so precious and dear to us, that every time we are tempted we would remember the great price that you paid to redeem us. Help us to live in a way that doesn't live to, to get the approval from others, but lives to bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.